welcome to the American Filmmaker Podcast. On this episode, I really would like to welcome a filmmaker and a subject. The filmmaker is Peter Hutchison, and the subject and author is Tony McAleer. Tony just released a new book called The Cure for Hate. I was really excited to see this film because I think it really, really helps people take any hate that's inside of them and helps remove it. And so I hope when you can, you can search out Peter's new film, Healing from Hate, A Battle for the Soul of a Nation. Welcome to the American Filmmaker Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. First, I want to start a little bit with Peter, and we'll just go really quick because I feel for any filmmaker who's got over 50,000, possibly close to over 100,000 hours of making films, all of the listeners need to go and explore their work and discover their craft. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to filmmaking and then and then we'll kind of jump into the new film? Sure, you know, I, I took, I think like a lot of filmmakers, I took a rather circuitous route to filmmaking. And filmmaking's my third or fourth career at this point. Uh, and, I, and I don't think you realize, it's not always easy to see where what you're working with and what you're doing is going to lead you. I, I don't think when I... Uh, was working in drug rehabs with um, with patients struggling with issues around addiction. Uh, I don't think I ever I ever foresaw that my counseling and experience as a therapist was going to help me someday uh, engage with people in terms of filmmaking. But it really informed me how to be present with people, how to listen. Um, how to ask questions in a way that people feel comfortable sharing themselves in a very whole and open way. I've been in the film industry in, in a number of different capacities for the last two decades or more. I've done a lot of work in narrative production, uh, both from a financial standpoint. Uh, I've been a bond rep. I eventually started making docs in a way all the production work prepared me to really understand how films are made from the inside out. And um, I realized after going seeing a few films that I was very disappointed about, like a lot of people, I think I said, you know what, I can do better than that. And then I started, so I started making, making the films that I wanted to see really. That's a very, uh, Gabriela Garcia Marquez answer. Because <laughs> he, uh, one thing he said was, no one was writing the work. And so I wanted to write things my friends would really enjoy reading and that I would enjoy reading. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think, you know, the turning point for me was um, I've always been very involved in activism. And there's a really fascinating guy in New York whose name's Reverend Billy. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a sort of culture jamming, uh, guerrilla street theater activist. Does absolutely, I think he's a genius. And he does these really off the wall, disruptive engagements. He really battled against gentrification in New York a lot of the big box stores coming in, a lot of corporate entities coming in and really, you know, erasing 
much of, I think, what many of us moved to New York for, because many of the things we fell in love with New York was the coffee houses and the culture and, you know, and then the Starbucks came in and the Disney stores came in and, you know, he, he would literally walk into a Starbucks, jump up on the counter, and he would start preaching the gospel of anti-consumerism, right? And so, and he wore uh, this incredible white suit like a southern preacher and he has has his hair slicked back like Billy Graham and he's hilarious and people don't know whether what he's doing is real or not they don't know if this guy's crazy they don't know if um, he's serious and so they stop and they listen and it's this really disruptive way of maybe making people think about what they're doing and his big philosophy that he really, I think, tries to drill into people's head is, you know, you vote with your dollar. You need to think about every dollar you spend because every dollar you spend is going to support one business versus another. You go buy a cup of you know, coffee at Starbucks, you're putting your neighbor and local business owner out of business, right? Uh, and that goes right down the line with every dollar you spend. And I went to see a doc about him um, and it was terrible. I was so disappointed. I'd worked with him, and he was a bit of a friend, and I just started to shoot with him. Uh, and ended up partnering with Morgan Spurlock to produce a film called What Would Jesus Buy? Where we put him and his you know, gospel choir on a bus and sent them across the United States in search of the true meaning of Christmas for a month. And they would stop in all these places, pile off the bus, do this big sort of gospel tent revival thing in the in the parking lot outside of a Walmart, and everybody would stop and and you know just in awe and wonder. And he changed people's way of thinking about how they spend their money and the economy in a really clever way. And that's you know that was the first the first film I made, and each film after that was just a very organic, natural outgrowth of what interested me, that I wanted to see a film made about. You know, at first when you mentioned the character, the Reverend? Well, he goes, you know, he sort of has this persona called Reverend Billy. His name is Bill Talon. Um, And it's uh, sometimes it's difficult to separate the man from the, the persona that he's created. When you first mentioned him, I actually drew a blank. But once you started talking about the film, I realized I had actually seen it. This was the late 90s, right? Yes, correct. correct. I saw it uh, in my student film festival at Southern Illinois University, and it helped me. Oh, that's awesome. So that's I, awesome. I just thank you. <laughs> thank, I'm glad you got a chance to see it. That's a... Uh... It's an important movie. I mean, it shook us up hard at Southern Illinois University, and it affected and rippled through through my film class and all the documentarians. So this is... I'm now a fanboy for all the listeners out there. It's like meeting uh, someone who's created something that helped influence a lot of your peers' work. That's great. I mean, you know, that's, that's why we do it, right? At least, you know, I mean, I think a lot of us... We really do believe in the power of storytelling through film to change people's hearts and minds. It's not, you know, it's, it's, you know, 
I, I feel very strongly about it. You know, it's not just a, you know, a, a phrase that I throw about carelessly. I think all my films, in some capacity, they take a look at American culture, identity, social justice issues. I think uh, the role of masculinity plays a big part in, in many of, of the films, uh, as well as economic inequality. The next film I made after What Would Jesus Buy was called Split, A Divided America, and it was really the first film. I mean, there's a, I think there's been a whole string of films about this topic since we made this film. But it was the first film that really took a really deep dig at, at the very, very deep split that was starting to occur in, in America and the polarization between parties and, and, um, and cultures. And we, the filmmaker I was working with, he was, uh, he had dual citizenship. He was Dutch and American and he'd only ever lived in New York, uh, and LA, never been across the country didn't really understand America and and was just flummoxed when Bush won the election. Uh, he said, I don't know a single Republican. I don't understand what this is about. So we put him in a van for a couple months and we just drove around the country so he could talk to people and really examine where these different splits in the way that, you know, we look at America come from. And then I was involved in a film called Awake Zion, which um, was a really super fun film to make. Uh, my films aren't always, don't seem like fun films, I guess, but this was a really fun film because it examines the parallels between um, Rastafarian and Ju Judaism through reggae music. And so our director traveled around the world primarily in the States and Israel, really kind of, and Jamaica, doing this real deep excavation of why there are so many parallels between the countries, uh, between the cultures. Um, and it's a fun movie with killer soundtrack. Um, I really enjoyed making that. And then um, the film of mine that you probably, most people have likely to have come across is Requiem for the American Dream. It was, it's an uh, exploration of inequality in the United States uh, that features Noam Chomsky. It's a long-form interview with Noam that really uh, is structured in a way to bring his work to a broader audience. We've really tried to distill it down so that it's accessible to everyone from, you know, a high schooler on up to people who have, have been uh, fans of Noam and read his work for decades. And I think it's uh, it was it was very effective. I think one of the, one of the really most wonderful parts of that experience for me is is we take the film to festival, and I'd see a, a gentleman like my age go to see the movie, come out, be really excited about it, you know, shake our hands, thank us. Next day he comes back with his son. They come out, they're both excited. Next day, the son comes back with his friends. Um, and I saw a lot of that, which for me was, you know, that's why we make movies. That's why, you know, that's what you hope to come out of, of these kinds of films. And so that pretty much brings us up to 
healing from hate. So Tony, how did you meet Peter? This is unique because you're an author, but then you were also the subject of of a movie, and then you've also done a lot of work within that space. So what kind of work were you doing before, and then how did that lead to this movie? I co-founded a group called Life After Hate in 2011, and it was founded by six members of former members of the white supremacist movement with the goal of helping people who are where we once were. And that started in 2011, and we were really, you know, starting to pick up steam in 2014, 2015, 2016. And along the way, uh, I'd met uh, a sociologist out of New York, Michael Kimmel. And he was writing a book, he'd written a book called Healing from Hate. And I was a subject that he wrote about in, in the book and, and, and a couple of others he wrote about our organization. And it was through Michael Kimmel that I met um, Peter. And I think Peter was doing a work on, on Michael's book. And uh, that's, that's how we got connected together. Michael, actually, he, he had just started writing the book when we were discussing uh, potential ways to make a film about masculinity in, in America. And um, he had just published Angry White Men, which was very prescient. prescient. It, it, it had, you know, basically predicted the rise of Trump and the all right. And he had just started to research the exit groups in Europe. And I think it had just met some of you guys. Uh, and in fact, I think I ended up uh, working with, with some of the members from Life After Hate before he even like engaged with them or met them. So it kind of was, it was kind of an interesting process because he introduced me to you guys. And, but then I, I kind of, I had to introduce him to some of you ultimately because we had developed this relationship uh, sort of ahead of his research. But yeah, I, I really have to credit Michael with bringing us together. And also, you know, his book, his book is a bit of a template for the film. We didn't end up making a film about the book by any means. Uh, it is its own animal, but, but it really was the, the inspiration for the film. And, and Michael is responsible for, you know, introducing me to these guys. And, you know, I'm grateful to him for that. It's a good lesson, I think, to kind of create multiple forms of resonance in the sense that the book will go to a certain audience, but the film is going to reach a whole other audience and make it palatable so that people might actually pick up the book who aren't as avid readers, and then vice versa. If someone's a reader, but then they want to meet the characters face-to-face -face and they want to see their journey. So really, really great lesson for all the filmmakers who are listening, as well as anyone who wants to go pick up the book and watch the movie in the same weekend. Well, that's the hope, the hope that there's synergy between all of these different pieces. You know, I mean, Tony's book's fantastic in its own right. Michael's book's fascinating. The film, I, I think, is it, it occupies a space that overlaps with both of the books and they inform one another. Uh, and it's, it's such a crucial conversation that we need to have right now as, as a country. The more and varied opportunities that we can create for people to become aware of 
the really remarkable work that Tony and Life After Hate do and their approach, which is so deeply grounded in, in compassion and empathy. You know, our, our country needs a lot, a lot more of that right now, I think. I want to ask Tony a question. Were you in any hate groups? This is, this is a great question for you to ask. While every former's experience is unique in its own way, I think there's also, you know, um, they share so much in common. They're, they're very parallel journeys. It's, it's a, you know, it's almost like an archetypal journey that you guys have been through in terms of how they get into hate groups, how they, they, you know, how they manage to get out of them. Uh, I think there's a long walk in the wilderness uh, for, for many of them over the process of, of getting out of these hate groups. And, and I think it's very much why the organization came together to help people figure out how to make that transition. Tony, I think it would be really helpful for everyone to hear your story about the process of how you got into hate groups and how you got out. Um, because I think it's, it's, a, it's a journey that I think many people uh, who've gone through that same process have shared. Well, it starts with me as it does with just about everyone else that has gone on this journey. It, it starts in childhood, right? And, you know, and I think back to who I was when I came into the world. Who was little Tony? Uh, and I was this bright, curious, mischievous, stubborn, sensitive, defiant little guy, curious and open to the world. And then life happens to us. And I didn't come from, you know, violence in the home or anything like that. I, I had quite a privileged upbringing. Uh, my father was a doctor, psychiatrist. You know, I suppose you could look at that as, as part of the problem. And, and went to private school and grew up in an affluent neighborhood. And there was nothing no material thing that I had want for. He was a, he was a great provider and, but emotionally he wasn't there for me. And when I was 10, I walked in on him with another woman and that really rocked, rocked my world. And, and I was so angry, confused and felt betrayed by all the authority figures in my life. And I went from an AB student to a CD student and going to all boys Catholic school, they tried everything to get my grades, all kinds of carrots, and they decided to use the stick. And if I didn't get an A or B in major tests and assignments, I was hit on the rear end with a yardstick. And that really left an imprint on me in that I, even to this day, I don't think I've ever felt more powerless as I felt in, in, in those, those moments in that, that office over and over and over again. And I just want to be clear here, I don't blame anything on my childhood. Everything I did, I chose to do. But by looking at my childhood, you can start to see the lens through which I made those choices. And, you know, by the time I, I started listening to The Clash and the Sex Pistols, I'd been listening to, to Queen and Elton John before that. And you sort of see where it took me. And by the time I first met skinheads, I was drawn to them. And, and upon reflection, you know, what was it that drew me to them? And they had the one thing that I didn't have as a soft middle class kid. They had toughness. And with them, I didn't have to fear violence because I was at the source of it. And so that feeling of safety, you know, we, and I got a sense of camaraderie. I got a sense of brotherhood and community. And, and really I got power when I felt powerless. I got attention when I felt invisible and I got acceptance when I felt unlovable. And it's those types of vulnerabilities that come out of 
childhood trauma or neg- you know negative emotional experiences which which color color our life and and these things are these themes show up over and over and over again and in 2011 we we were all invited to Dublin for the Summit Against Violent Extremism put on by Google Ideas and they brought 50 former violent extremists from around the planet so you had the IRA you had the Ulster Volunteer Force their Protestant nemesis you had a former president of Colombia, a former FARC commander. You had Red Brigade, Mujahideen, Al-Shabaab, you name it. It transcended race, class, ideology, geography, faith, even gender. And these, you know, talking to these people like, well, how did you get in? What, what drew you in? And it, over and over and over again, it was, you know, almost the first thing they would say is, that, well, it wasn't the ideology. You know, and they started to describe things that come with the ideology that come with these groups. And it was all the same things that I had experienced. And, and when we asked, well, how did, you, how did you get out? The same sort of themes showed up. And then the number one theme that showed up was compassion. And it, it came in the form of the birth of a child. And I'm going to say anecdotally, a female child. And it came from receiving compassion. This showed up over and over again. Receiving compassion from someone who we feel we didn't deserve it from especially if that person was someone we had once dehumanized. And that, that very powerful emotional experience for people was so transformative. And, and we were just amped up. We were pumped. And I remember on the, the hotel garden roof, uh, you know, the six of us all got together and put our hands on top of each other. And it was like the six musketeers all for one and one for all. And, um, you know, within three months of coming back to the United States, we'd, we'd set up a 501c3 and, and, and just went to, to work with the best of intentions and the lint in our pockets to help people who are where we once, we once were. And, and we've since grown and professionalized and, you know, brought in ethical standards and, and standards of care that are more professional and everything like that. And, you know, that's got us to where, where we are today. And the, the real watershed moment for Life After Hate really was around Charlottesville. And six weeks before that, we had a grant for 400,000 rescinded by the, the current administration that was granted to us by the previous administration. And when Charlottesville kicked off, everything went insane. I think we helped 100 people up until Charlottesville and from 2011 to 2017. Um, in the two, two and a half years since, we've helped 300 just in that short period of time. And there's no shortage of people reaching out. And, and when they reach out and we listen to their stories and we, we hear where they're coming from, all the same themes show up over and over and over again. And I think those negative childhood experiences create what I call toxic shame. And that's an impaired sense of self, that feeling of being less than, of being unlovable, of being powerless, of, of feeling invisible. And, you know, we live our lives in reaction to that. And we get to that place where, uh, you know, what's what's the word that's the opposite of shame? Pride. So white proud boys, white pride worldwide. It's a projection of of an internal internal peace. And I think if we know, you know, to to cure hate, we have to understand it. And we don't get to solutions through blame. We get to solutions through understanding. And if those traumas and emotional traumas are at the root then the answer isn't an intellectual exercise. It's addressing the trauma. Remove the trauma, and then there's no need to, to engage in, in the ideology.
what are some of the processes that that you use with the formers in order to help facilitate this very necessary just transformation and evolution of the human soul? You know, technically speaking, everyone a life after hate is trained in motivational interviewing. You know, sort of for a for a technical look at what that is like. But you know, people often ask me, "What's the first thing you say to you know to a neo-Nazi?" And it's it's not what I'd say. I said the first thing I'd do is I'd listen. You know, and and it's it's being able to sit and listen with with curiosity to someone who has a viewpoint and and a, a vision of the world that's you know is abhorrent to me. And it's it's being able to sit and give that person a safe space. I'm a huge fan of B'nai Brown, and she has this, uh, to paraphrase her, when we uh, give people uh, the opportunity to be vulnerable in a safe space without judgment, shame gets washed away. And so just being able, these people often have very, what they're feeling is real to them. They have often legitimate grievances. Now where the solutions for the grievances are completely insane. But they often have uh, a pain, a grievance that's that's real, and and often they've never had the opportunity to express it to someone, and just that starts the ball, and and the ego defenses then can come down, and you can sort of engage in the person at a, at a, a different, not a guarded, a guarded level, and um, you know we're also I'm aware I'm not a therapist, I'm not a counselor, I'm a mentor and a coach, and I'm trained as a life coach, and. You know, that the idea is then to pass them on to get resources to deal with those those traumas and adverse emotional uh, experiences that they've that they've had. But the first thing we do is we listen. That's something that comes up time and time again in the stories that I've heard you guys tell is almost everyone has experienced that transformative moment where they were really heard for the first time. It's a very powerful thing to feel heard and be given the space to to talk about who you are and feel supported in that. You know, it's the unconditional love. It's a big, I mean, how many spiritual prophets across the span of, you know, Human existence have, you know, their teachings boil down to some pretty fundamental things. And, you know, a lot of it's compassion, unconditional positive regard, empathy. Sammy has this great quote, and it's um, never concede, never condemn. Right. And that means, you know, hold the space uh, of non-judgment to create the safe space for the, for them to be able to express themselves. And it, by listening, it doesn't mean... You accept what they're saying. Doesn't mean you approve of what they're saying. You're just providing a safe space for them to, to listen. So you, and but never, never concede on your values. You know you hold the values. You don't have to agree with them. You hold the values. So it's never, you never concede your values, but you never condemn the human being. The ideology is monstrous. The activities are monstrous. Um, but we never lose sight of the fact that there's a human being inside. Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize that a lot of these men's grievances and their anger, it's real. They have justifiable reasons to be pissed off. 
I mean, you know, I think everything from economic inequality and shifting norms around male identity and what it means to be a man and how how do you express your masculinity in a society that, you know, it's not the same, it's not the same culture as it was for my dad or my dad's dad. I think men are searching and, and adjusting to find ways to figure out how to be men and, and feel good about that. But I mean, and again, it's the issue, of course, it, it, it doesn't absolve anyone of that kind of abhorrent behavior. I mean, what they what what a lot of people are doing with their anger is it's it's absolutely horrible you know and in some cases it feels very unforgivable which is why i think it's so difficult to engage and listen and and not be reactive and being open and be empathetic but but i do think you know it's super important to honestly listen to the anger and where it's coming from as i was listening the unconditional love space that you're giving in that listening really is something that the world doesn't even give all of us humans. The world is conditional. We have gravity, we have oxygen, and then it just continues. So it really is a space that, that you're creating with unconditional love to allow that shame to pass. The other thing that came up, you know, I think we hear the, the, the term toxic masculinity, and then we forget that that's only a portrait and a snapshot of a picture. And if we look at different cultures throughout history, whether it was the Taoists who chose to retreat into the mountains, you know, in that place in time and space, the Taoists, you know, created balance. And so I think in some places, and maybe even with different yogas or different, um, you know, Buddhist practices, but I think there's this thing, and I've been wondering about it, divine masculinity. And so is there a way to talk about toxic masculinity versus divine masculinity. Because I do think, because when we hear one and we don't hear the other, we're only being presented with one face of, you know, something that has so many faces like a diamond. It's multifaceted. And so would you mind talking about one versus the other? These are conversations that Tony and I actually have all the time. We're both very fascinated with the work of David Data. I think Tony has studied him far more in depth than I have, but I've, I've read a bunch of his work. And, and I think he, he really allows a completely different window through which to experience and explore masculinity. And I think, um, you know, quite frankly, that may be a whole other podcast episode altogether and a whole other movie. There's a whole other movie in there as well. Um, and I am working on a, I have a long-term project that explores masculinity um, and I would imagine his ideas will end up being incorporated into it in some capacity. Maybe it would be helpful for you to talk a little bit about data and particularly that work within the context of the film and the work that you do, um, but not get, you know, not go too far down the rabbit hole because it is, it is a, a, it's a huge area. Right. We, we could talk for hours just about that alone, I think. You know, I came across data and and trying to understand masculinity and and that in that book, uh, the way of the superior man. It's not it's not like the title suggests. It's about men being superior. It's how to be a superior man amongst men. 
is what that's and it's a it's a guide to work sex and spirituality and so the, the you know the major aspects of of our lives and i think part of the problem is 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 in the east you have yin and yang right and and i think with we talk about masculinity it gets it gets so confused with gender i wish there was words that didn't that didn't bring gender into it um, because you can you can have men that are super masculine or super feminine, and you can have women that are super masculine or super feminine. It, it doesn't matter. So I was trying to discover this, this for myself, because I think a lot of what happens with, with young men and, and young women in these movements is they're searching for a sense of uh, masculinity. And, and Kimmel has written some great stuff around this. And, you know, when we don't have fathers, you know, we don't, who teaches us to be to show up and, and be a man in a healthy way, to be masculine in a healthy way. And, you know, when I was involved in the skinhead thing, I knew how to get respect. It was a recipe. Everybody, there was an expectation. You know, you don't run away in a fight. You know, you, you do all these different things and then you could get validated. And, and so you, it gets, becomes defined by your peers. When your peers, you know, adopt this distorted sense of what, it, what masculinity is and, and, and the group buys into that, that's when it, it can go really sideways and, and, and dangerous and toxic. And I, I'm, I'm not a fan of the phrase toxic masculinity because it, it, it confuses, I think people think that masculinity is toxic. It's, and I, I prefer to use the word unmasculinity. Those behaviors are, they're not, it's not toxic masculinity, it's unmasculinity. And so I think it's really important work around how to show up as men in a healthy way and how to get the gun. And I think this is why Jordan Peterson is so insanely popular or was insanely popular speaking to young men in, in that fatherly way and, and, you know, trying some of, some of those things in the 12 rules of life um, thematically are, are in David Data's work and, and uh, you know, show up and, and, be, you know, the confidence and, and how to hold presence and, and do what you say you're going to do and, and those types of things that are missing in so many young men's life. And I, I think uh, it's, it, it's a, it is a whole other world to explore that is also so connected to these young men that have so lost their way in their journey for acceptance and who they are and, and trying to discover how to show up in the world in, in their healthy sense of masculinity. And yeah, and, and unfortunately that's related to their fathers, the grandfathers, how masculinity has been modeled for them. Mm-hmm. And I think you make this really crucial point around this concept uh, or the language of toxic masculinity is I do think that there is, there is a problem with assuming toxic masculinity to mean that all of masculinity is therefore toxic. Um, And I think one of the things that people like data do that's really valuable is they reaffirm the positive aspects, positive traits, positive strengths of masculinity, the necessary ones, you know, and if you you want to go down the, the pathway of talking about yin and yang, it's, you know, there's, there, there's so many, aspects of 
masculinity and being a man that are crucially important and crucially important to that balance of yin and yang. I, I, I think there's a real danger in looking at masculinity through this idea of toxic masculinity and then and assuming that therefore, you know, we need to feminize men. Right, right. That that young young men need to be fully in their yin, you know, in their in their feminine energy and in Data's work and in uh, the, the tantric stuff that, that I've studied, you know, being able to ideally, uh, you know, as a human being, I can go fully into my masculine, I can go and be able to go fully into my feminine and, and my partner can do the same, you know, and, and so it, it's this fluidly embracing both aspects um, because they're not, they're not rooted in gender. They're there are universal aspects that every human being possesses and we maybe repress some and embrace others and, and all that kind of stuff. But being able to embrace both sides, the yin and the yang, um, it's a very liberating you know, place to be. And we don't have to be afraid of it. And, but to tell young men that, that being in, in your yang is, is toxic and you, and you have to go be in your yin to be I think it's it's confusing. I think it's dangerous. I think it's it's not helpful. It's not healthy. And and you know, young young men are reacting to that. They're you know, and so there's this whole counterculture aspect to the growth of the of the alt right, where they reject it outright, and they'll they'll take a, a polarity, an opposite position. For them, feminism is the enemy, right? And you know, and then fem feminism uh, has had so many important things to teach men. What I increasingly hear men talking about is referring to, referring to it as masculinities, right? That it's not, masculinity is not one thing. You know, it's a whole spectrum yes. of identity and behavior. And that, you know, obviously what masculinity is changes over the course of our life cycle, you know? Um, it's a constantly evolving thing. You, you, you can't just put masculinity in a box and say that's what it is. And I think that's, that's what makes all of this very complicated. And, but, but to bring it back to the film, which I think we should try and root this conversation in the film, is uh, I think a really important piece of this is, yes, a, a lot of this alt-right and white power attitude uh, comes very, very much in... Uh, in reaction to feminism, to all kinds of different forces that they don't have an, a different response to. So the response is anger and reactivity, uh, and which comes out of, I think, fear. And I think, I think it's, you know, and I said this after the film last, last night, we have to be very careful how we have our conversations around white privilege and male privilege, those conversations have to be had, uh, it, but in a, in, in a healthy way. And I think, um, you know, if you're teaching in school and, and you're, you know, you're talking about white privilege, male privilege and the patriarchy and, and how evil white, white males are in society, and you've got a group of 20 white males going, where, how do I fit into this conversation? Um, you know, you, we've got to make sure that we that that conversation includes them so they don't become completely alienated. And I think that, that I think 
there is a, a huge swath of young men that are completely alienated because of how that conversation is is being had and and that's the counterculture so and then reject all discussion about privilege and and react in the the polar opposite the opposite way which which exacerbates the problem as i was listening to your words tony and also your words peter some things that came through for me is we have to address both sides of these coins and also address the complexity of what it means to be human, constantly trying to perfect ourselves. And I think the film Healing from Hate, A Battle for the Soul of a Nation, is a really great almost tool or process because at the beginning, I didn't quite know if I needed to heal from hate, but we all have some tarnish of emotion on us that we don't know how to get rid of. No matter if you're full-blown hate, or even if you're a gang member. And I think that was one of the moments in the film that really struck me was, was this friendship between a gang member and, and a former. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I do think there is a universality between the experiences of a gang member, a hate group member, and I think to see there be a, a kinship between, say, Tony, who comes from a neo-Nazi group, and Sammy, who comes from a notorious gang on the south side of Chicago, um, they're very, it, it, they may seem like incredibly different cultures, but they have far more similarities than, than you think. And I, I think Tony could probably speak to that yeah, I mean, on the on the surface, I'm, you know, I'm a I'm a white middle class doctor's kid, you know, growing up in affluence, and Sammy's, you know, ran away from home at uh, an abuse at twelve and on the street and in, in prison. So they look like they couldn't be more more opposite. This whole dynamic is very well encapsulated by the relationship that Julius and Randy have at the end of the film. You know, you got a black kid who is, a lot of their friendship comes out of these commonalities. You know, Julius grows up, grew up in, um, in Florida. You know, a lot of his friends, you know, they got, they get recruited into the Crips and the Bloods. And he, he very quickly understood that Randy's experience with uh, the white power movement was exactly the same. You know, you've got these, these young men who are in very vulnerable positions. They're looking for some kind of belonging and connection and identity. And the, uh, their paths are actually, they're, they're completely parallel paths. It's, you know, the recruitment process for the Crips and the Bloods is no different than in, in, a, in a white power, uh, white supremacist group. And these kids are looking for the same thing. And it's not not the ideology necessarily at all. That's, you know, as, as Tony said time and time again, the, uh, the ide ideology 95% of the time comes later once, once you're involved in, in these groups. And it's, you know, it's, it's simply uh, part of the language and, and what you connect around and, I, and ultimately start to identify with, but it's not what brings people into those groups. It's what surrounds the ideology that that you know brotherhood sense of purpose all of these things it doesn't really matter what the ideology is and there's also you know an element of serendipity 
in this. You know, we, one has to have the vulnerabilities, you know, that, that make the gang or the, the ideology seductive. Uh, but sometimes it's just meeting the wrong person at the bus stop or, or something and getting into a conversation. And, and, you know, that's how we always started as a recruiter. You know, it's like, oh, come to this party. Or, and then, the, you know, once they get in, then you love bomb them and here, have a beer. And you put your arm around them and listen to music. And, and you know, when people are feeling, young men are feeling isolated and, and alone in the world, um, you know, the, the ideology was never the first thing we talked about was bring them in, let them feel kinship and community and, and, and that. And that's the, that's the seduction. And the, the ideologists, uh, it just it's all built around the ideology. But it's not, it's not the ideology itself. What's going on with the film now? And then how do people watch it? And when can they watch it on a larger scale? Well, the film is, it'll be out on the festival circuit for the next six months probably. We're working with... Media Education Foundation. They're an educational distributor. They're creating a 200 na uh, campus nationwide screening tour and outreach program that will start next fall, which we're really excited about. In concert with that, we'll be doing a limited theatrical release, primarily in secondary markets where we feel communities need to see the film the most. And then uh, we'll be releasing it digitally probably around around election time this fall. So I would say check in with our Facebook page. You can find it very easily, Healing from Hate. Uh, we'll constantly have updates about festival screenings in, in communities near you, hopefully. And then for Tony, I know you're touring around the world on some consulting work as well as a book tour. How do listeners find your work and buy the book? Uh, well, you can get the, the book online at Amazon. Um, also, you can go to the thecureforhate.com, and that's the book's name, The Cure for Hate, A Former White Supremacist Journey from Violent Extremism to Radical Compassion. Or if you like to support small publishers and not the Borg, that is, that is Amazon. Uh, if you go to arsenalpulp.com, uh, you can purchase it directly, and they're, uh, they're a great little... Um, that uh, is a social justice kind of publishing house and they do a, a tremendous publish tremendous work and if you put in the code cure uh, you'll get a discount thank you for listening to this episode of the american filmmaker podcast I just want to thank Tony McAleer and Peter Hutchison for being so candid and just talking about their journey to bring this film, Healing from Hate, to audiences. I really, really enjoyed watching this film. I think this film helps transform you as an audience member when you watch it because to witness how deep the filmmakers go into the level of the process of healing from these extreme situation where a human soul has basically become radicalized into violence through how they've been treated. It's just an amazing, amazing window into this world. And I think in a way, we all need to heal a little bit. I encourage all the listeners to go watch 
all of Peter's films. And then watch Healing from Hate. Healing from Hate will be out later this year. So please, please watch it wherever you can. The producer of this episode is Josh Hyde. The music was created by Michael J. Deller of the Budos Band and Charles Bradley and his Extraordinaires. Thank you, Mikey. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you really, really like this episode, please subscribe to the American Filmmaker Podcast. We will see you next time from the front lines of creativity, storytelling, and filmmaking in the world today. Today.